would invite you to take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, we're going to be looking at chapter 1. Steve, can I have you go back to my box in the office and bring me the papers that are there? Having some issues with my digital version of the sermon. We may have to go old school today. We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Jonah. And today we'll pick up where we left off last time. And we'll be looking at chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 11 and reading down through verse 16. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Thank you. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, help us to see what we need to see from this portion of your word. We pray you would open our hearts and that you would press your word deeply into us, that you would make us more and more as the people you want us to be. And above all, Father, we pray that as we see the love of the gospel, the love that you have for us displayed in the gospel, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would fill us with hope and joy as we seek to go out and live as your people. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you may know the name Reverend Henry Garrick. Garrick was an American, a Lutheran pastor during the first half of the 20th century. He served uh, during World War II as an army chaplain, and he's probably best known for having been appointed to be the chaplain of the Nazi prisoners during the Nuremberg trials. He met with the Nazi leaders who were standing trial for committing some of the most horrific crimes imaginable. One by one, Garrick would meet with them and share the gospel with them. Eight of them were converted. They put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Garrick even served them communion in their their jail cells. One of them was Joachim von Ribbentrop. He had been the foreign minister for Hitler. One was William Keitel. He had been the field marshal chief of the German armed forces. One was Fritz Sockel, who was the, Navy, or the, the Nazi head of labor supply and described as one of the cruelest slave masters since Pharaoh in Egypt. Another was William Frick, who was the minister of the interior and oversaw a reign of terror which targeted many Christians. Each of those men and 
The others went to the scaffold to be executed. And as they did, they were confessing their sins. They were asking for God to repent or helping, asking God to forgive them as they repented of their sins. And they were trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But not all of the men that Garrick spoke with did. Hermann Goering, one of Hitler's closest colleagues, attended chapel regularly visited with Garrick on a number of occasions. Garrick shared the gospel with him many times, but he never believed. He ridiculed Christianity and ridiculed the Lord Jesus Christ, even on the very night when minutes after Garrick left the cell of Gehring, he committed suicide. What would you have done if you were Garrick? What would you have done if you had been appointed chaplain of the Nazi prisoners during the Nuremberg trials? You were given a number of the vilest Nazi officers as your congregation. Would you have gone into their cells? Would you have sat with them? Would you have talked with them? Would you have shared the gospel with them? Would you have prayed with them? Would you have shared communion with them? If if we're honest, there's something deep within us that just doesn't feel that that's quite right. That people like that could get forgiveness after a life of such incredible sin. In fact, when Garrick returned to the United States, he became a pastor here in the Midwest. He pastored a church in Wisconsin. He pastored a church in Illinois. And during his tenure of pastoring those churches, he received a number of threatening and abusive letters. Because of his sharing the gospel with those Nazi soldiers, of of leading them to Christ. And it's interesting to wonder, if he had been alive at the time, would Jonah have written one of those letters to Garrick? Remember, God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh, the heart of Israel's enemy, Assyria. And history books tell us that the Assyrian war crimes against Israel and against others would have made the Nazis look like gentle and lowly people. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, to that city of Nineveh, and to preach the good news about the Lord God Almighty, about his truth and his grace. And Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, he went exactly in the opposite direction. He went down to the port city of Joppa. He found a ship that was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He got on and he set sail on the Mediterranean Sea. As we saw last week, Jonah's attempt to get away from the calling of the Lord on him didn't work. The Lord hurled a storm onto the sea. A storm that was great enough that we're told that the ship almost broke apart. And these pagan sailors that were on the ship began to pray to their false gods that they followed. They threw the cargo off of their ship to lighten it. They were doing everything they could to try to figure out how to solve the problem of the storm. But Jonah wasn't. He was down in the inner part of the ship, asleep. And the captain of that ship went to him and rebuked him. Get up, you sleeper. Pray to your God. Maybe he'll help us. We saw last week that eventually they cast lots to find out who uh, was at fault for what was happening to them. And the lot fell on Jonah. And the pagan sailors 
asked Jonah who he was, where was he from, what had he done? And it's interesting that we saw last week that Jonah was honest. He said, I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, the Lord God Almighty. And the author tells us that Jonah told the soldiers, sailors what he was doing, trying to get away from the presence of the one true God. And as we finished last week, we saw these sailors were exceedingly afraid. So what happens when you try to get away from the presence of the Lord? What happens when the Lord calls you to do something and you ignore it? Or even worse, you run in the opposite direction. Well, today let's look at this continuing to unfold story, this portion of it. And then let's look at a couple questions that come from the text. And let's finish by asking, so what? What difference does all of this make for us today? So first of all, let's continue to unfold the story in verses 11 through 16. You'll notice that these exceedingly afraid sailors come in verse 11 to get some advice from Jonah. Look at what they say. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. The sailors come to Jonah and they want to know Jonah's opinion. Jonah, what do we need to do to you to get out of this mess that we're in? What do we need to do so that the storm will go away? You are obviously the cause of the problem. So how do we fix it? How do we get out of this mess? How do we stay alive? Jonah responds to them in verse 12. And given how the story has been going so far, the response of Jonah is pretty shocking. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Pick me up and throw me, hurl me into the sea, he says. That's the way that we will get this storm to calm down. He was acknowledging that he was at fault, that the wrongdoing was his, that the Lord was bringing this storm on them because of what Jonah had done. Now, we need to appreciate the gravity of what Jonah is saying to them in this moment. To be thrown off of this ship without a life preserver into the midst of a storm that these seasoned sailors are afraid of meant certain death for Jonah. He was telling them, men, I'm the cause of the problem here. Because of my wrongdoing, so you kill me and you'll get to live. Throw me out of the boat and into the water and I will be your substitute. I will be your sacrifice and you will be saved. Well, we see the sailors initial reaction in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. These were some good men. They were trying to do everything they could to come up with an alternative to killing Jonah. Maybe they had a high view of the dignity of the sanctity of life. Maybe they were just afraid of what God would do if they killed this prophet of his. 
But their first reaction was to try to row back to the land. In fact, the word that the, the words here that say rowed hard literally in the in the Hebrew mean that they dug their oars into the waves. They were doing everything they could to spare Jonah. But we see at the end of verse 13, it didn't work. The storm just got worse and worse. And they were stuck in the middle of it. So the sailors realized, once they realized that their only option was to follow Jonah's instructions, we read what they did in verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. Oh, Lord, have done as it pleased you. When the sailors realized that their only option was to follow Jonah's instructions, what did they do? They prayed. And did you notice? Did you notice who they prayed to? They prayed to the Lord. And you'll notice it's all in capital letters, which indicates to us they were using the word Yahweh. They were praying to the one true God. They were praying to the one who had given his special name to his people, Yahweh. They were praying to the Lord God Almighty. And they prayed and they asked the Lord, don't hold us guilty for what we are going to do. Lord, please don't punish us for taking the life of this man. And then we read in verse 15 that they threw Jonah into the sea. Notice that the very next thing that happens is that the storm stops. The sea stopped raging. The sailors were saved. Just as Jonah said would happen. And do you see the response of these sailors in verse 16? The ones who had been exceedingly afraid because of the storm now feared Yahweh. And even more than that, notice they went so far as to offer sacrifices to Yahweh and to make vows, to make promises to him. So this brings us to a couple questions that come up in this text that we need to talk about. The first is a question about Jonah. What, what was really going on in Jonah's heart when he said verse 12? Was Jonah being repentant over his sin? Had he, had he come to his senses like the younger brother in the parable of the two sons? Or is Jonah just doubling down on his stubborn refusal to follow the Lord's call here? Was Jonah expressing true repentance? Or was he basically saying, look... I would rather you kill me than I go to Nineveh to preach grace and mercy of the Lord God Almighty to pagan people. Now I'll tell you that the biblical scholars and commentators aren't sure. In fact, their answers are almost as varied as there are people who have spoken about it. And it's probably not an either or. It's probably a both and. We know that the human heart is complicated and it's often conflicted and as we'll see as we continue to work our way through, jo through Jonah, his heart is a conflicted heart. So it's probably a mix of both repentance and also stubbornness. But what we do know is that Jonah was willing to sacrifice himself to save these pagan sailors. And as he was willing to do that, Jonah becomes an Old Testament type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He points forward to the work of Jesus. In fact, 
in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus specifically mentions Jonah. And he said that with Jesus' arrival on the earth, one greater than even Jonah had arrived. Of course, there are many differences between Jonah and Jesus. But when Jonah said, throw me in, I will die so that you can be saved. He is pointing us to Christ. Jonah was willing to become the substitute. He was willing to turn away the wrath of God from the sailors by taking it upon himself to propitiate the wrath of God so that the sailors could live. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. He lived a life of perfect love and obedience to his father. He was killed on the cross. He sacrificed himself. He took the wrath of God that we deserved and turned it away from us by taking it upon himself. And the result is we get our sins forgiven forever. We get the righteousness of Jesus credited to us. And so in this unlikely way, Jonah is pointing us to the good news of the gospel of Jesus. But there's another question here, and it's the question about the sailors. Biblical scholars and commentators also debate about whether these sailors were really converted or not. Was their prayer uh, to Yahweh? What was their fearing of the Lord? Was their sacrificing? Was their making of vows? Was all of that because they had been converted? That they were true God-fearing believers of the Lord God Almighty? Or were they just adding this new God, Yahweh, to their list of other false gods? Were they operating out of God's common grace? Or had they come to a saving knowledge of the Lord God Almighty? And again, the scholars are as varied on this as there are scholars. But I will say that I think we have good reason to believe that these pagan sailors had genuinely put their faith in the Lord. Just look at several of the clues that we have in the passage. Just look at the language of their prayer. They called out to Yahweh. They were recognizing the sovereign power of the Lord God Almighty. Yahweh himself. And the phrase at the end of verse 14 where they say, You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. That's a phrase that's actually used very similarly in several other places in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms and in Isaiah. And every time it's used, it's connected with the rejection of a foreign God and the embracing of Yahweh. We're told that they feared Yahweh. That's a phrase that's used in the Old Testament for genuine faith and belief in God. And we're told that they offered sacrifices and made vows. Again, the language in the Old Testament for what true believers do in faith. I think what we are seeing here is showing us the great irony of Jonah. Do you see it? God called Jonah to go to a pagan city, the pagan city of Nineveh, to proclaim God's truth and grace to them. Jonah wanted nothing to do with it, nothing to do with preaching to pagans and and showing God's grace and mercy to pagans. And so he tried to go in the opposite direction and he got on a boat in the Mediterranean Sea with a crew of a bunch of pagan sailors. And then God used Jonah as a means by which the pagan sailors were converted to faith. Jonah ends up being the picture for the sailors of a God who has his wrath propitiated, turned away. Who has his justice satisfied by a substitute. 
All of this leads us to some applications as we think about, okay, so what? So what does all of this, this have to do for us living today? Well, a few things here as we think about applying this into our lives. The first is this. Once again, in this passage today, we get a crystal clear picture of who is in charge. We see the absolute sovereign power of the Lord God Almighty. He is the one who increased the storm more and more until the soldier, the sailors were forced to do something. He is the one who prevented the sailors from being able to row back to the land. He is the one who brought Jonah to the point of being willing to offer his life as a substitute for the sailors. He is the one who immediately brought the storm to an end when Jonah went under the waves. And he is the one who opened the eyes and the hearts of pagan sailors so they could believe the truth. The Lord is in charge. The Lord works all things according to his perfect and good plan. The Lord works all things together for his own glory and for the ultimate good of his people. And that is true even when we can't see it. Even when we can't see what God is doing, when we can't see the purpose of what's happening in the circumstances of our life, when we can't see how what's happening around us brings glory to God and goodness to the people of God, the question is, Will we still believe that it's true? Will we trust that God is in control and that his plan brings about his glory and the good of his people? Like you, I've been hearing lots of stories coming out of the Ukraine, uh, stories of God's people, Christians. And there's a recurring uh, refrain that I'm hearing over and over again. They talk about we're experiencing this, we're experiencing that, we're experiencing this, but we are trusting the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I would ask you to reflect on how in contrast easy our lives are compared to our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine right now. There are probably very few of us in this room or online, if any, that have experienced bombs and missiles raining down in the cities in which we live. I watched a video yesterday of one of my friends who lives in Lviv as he walked out of his apartment onto his patio and the air sirens are going off. When's the last time that's happened for us? And yet our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Ukraine are modeling for us what it looks like to trust in the Lord in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. Will we trust what we say we believe? On a regular basis, we confess right here in this room our belief in the sovereign power and authority and the goodness of the plan of God. The question is, do we believe it? When things become difficult. A second takeaway for us today. As we look at this part of Jonah's story. It gives us a picture of the greatest kind of love. Regardless of what the, the motivation of Jonah's heart was. Jonah gives us a picture of substitutionary love. It's the picture of one greater than Jonah who gave his life not just to save a few pagan soldiers from a storm, but who died on the cross to save all of his people from their sins forever. 
That's what Jesus himself told us in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater love than the substitutionary, sacrificial, selfless love of our Savior. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that love is meant to keep changing us as Christians. The love of Jesus for us in the gospel is not just what brings us to faith initially. It is the power of that love that is meant to keep changing us and reforming us and making us more and more like Jesus. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 2. He said God's kindness, God's love, is it's meant to lead us to repentance. As the love of the Lord grips our hearts, it is meant to melt our hearts and to bring us to our senses with regard to our sin and rebellion against Him. To bring us to repentance, to bring us to a sorrow for our sin, that we would turn away from our sin and turn back to the Lord and grow an even deeper relationship with Him. The love of God for us is meant to move us to love the Lord and to keep His commandments and to love one another. And so, because that that is true, we need to do everything that we can to grow in our understanding of God's love for us. So how do we do that? What are the tools that He's given to us to help us to grow in our understanding of His love for us? Well, one is the Word He's given to us, His Word, which tells us everything we need to know about our Heavenly Father. Are you using it or are you neglecting it? Another is worshiping the Lord and participating in the Lord's Supper and baptism. It's a means by which we commune with the Lord. Are you taking it seriously? He also gives us the gift of prayer. He gives us access to Himself that we might talk with Him, that we might share the deepest wants and needs that we have. Are you spending time with your Father in prayer? Or are you neglecting that means of grace? He gives us the fellowship with God's people and uses it to help us tangibly experience love and to show love. Are you cultivating the fellowship, the community of God's people, or are you neglecting it? These are the main tools that the Lord has given to us to help us to grow in our understanding of God's love and to experience it. So we need to make use of them. And then thirdly and lastly, the story of Jonah also helps us to see why God's people must be humble. Jay Sklar in his commentary on Jonah says that if, if we were an Israelite reading the story of Jonah, thinking in our minds that I'm an Israelite, I'm one of God's special people, I deserve His mercy. And those Gentile pagans out there are the wicked sinners who don't deserve God's mercy. If, that's, if we were one of those people that was reading Jonah with that kind of mindset, our world would be flipped upside down. So far in the story, it is the Israelite prophet who is the wicked sinner needing the Lord's mercy. It is the Israelite prophet who is the wicked sinner who experiences the judgment of God. It's the Israelite prophet who had to be rebuked by a pagan sailor captain for sleeping during the storm rather than praying to the Lord God Almighty. 
It's the pagan sailors who are being shown the mercy and the grace of God and then respond by fearing the Lord and worshiping him. When we see this incredible contrast taking place in this story, it is meant to humble us as the people of God. God's people are sinners. We are in need of God's mercy and grace. We are in need of repentance. We are in need of receiving God's mercy and grace. We're the ones that know the Lord. We, we know His Word. We know His commandments. We, we know what His desires for us are. And so we should be the most humble people on the planet. We should never have an attitude of looking down arrogantly on sinners, thinking, I'm glad I'm not like that. Because in many ways, we are like that. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, there is no temptation that is not common to man. The seed of any sin is in our hearts. There but for the grace of God go I. And that must make us humble. And that also reminds us that the Lord delights in showing His grace and His mercy to all kinds of people. Even Nazi war criminals responsible for some of the most vile and horrendous crimes and atrocities the world has ever seen. So we should be praying for our enemies. We should be praying for those who persecute us. We should be praying for those wicked sinners out there like us. We should pray for the Lord to be gracious and merciful to them like he has been to us. We should pray for the Lord to use us to send people out to share the good news of the gospel to those who need to hear it. We should pray for the Lord to give us opportunities to take that good news of the grace and mercy of God to others, whether it's across the kitchen table, across the street or across the globe. So as we read the story of Jonah, we see that the Lord is in charge. His sovereign power and authority rules over all. And His plans are good. His plans are faithful. And we must trust Him. We see the greatest love that has ever been displayed. The substitutionary, sacrificial selfless love of Jesus through his life, death, resurrection and ascension. And that love is meant to change us. It's meant to to make us more repentant, to make us more like our Savior. So we need to make use of the tools that the Lord has given us to grow in our understanding of his love. And we need to see that God's people with God's people, there is no place for arrogance and pride. We must be the most humble people of all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for having the events of Jonah's life recorded for us. And we thank you for preserving them in such a way that we can read them today, knowing that we're reading the very word of God. And as we do that, Father, we pray that through the work of your spirit, you would cause us to be changed that you would bring us more into conformity with what you want us to be. Send us out, Father, from this place today with a renewed sense of learning our entire lives of the love that you have shown to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we meditate on that this week, Father, also 
Help us in our moments of doubt and disbelief to truly believe that you are the one in charge and that your plans for your glory and our good are faithful. And Father, make us humble. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.